Hello and welcome to the penultimate Faber podcast of 2013. My name is George Miller and I'm very pleased to say that my guest in this programme is biographer, physicist, science writer, and I now should add historian, Graham Farmelow. I first became aware of Graham's work a decade ago at Granter, where he had that rarest of things, a bestseller about equations, called It Must Be Beautiful. I interviewed him a few years ago for the Faber podcast when his biography of fellow physicist Paul Dirac came out. That book, entitled The Strangest Man, won the 2009 Costa Biography Award and the 2010 Los Angeles Times Science Book Prize. Graham and I met up again recently at Faber's offices in Bloomsbury to talk about his new book, Churchill's Bomb, a fascinating and pacey story of how Britain became a nuclear power seen through the lens of Winston Churchill's career. Graham shows that Churchill's interest in science, especially as it applied to the changing nature of warfare, ran all the way through his career. He was a devoted reader and sometime friend of that great speculator on the future, H.G. Wells. And Churchill himself pondered the nuclear question in his writing. In 1937, he contemplated the destructive potential that science's mastery of nature held out, at a time when many scientists still doubted a nuclear bomb was achievable, and asked, are we fit for it? Churchill's bomb provides an absorbing exploration of what happens when scientists encounter the pragmatic world of politics, and of whether politicians can cope with the power that scientists were increasingly able to place in their hands. As Graham says in this interview, the availability of nuclear energy at a time when the world was plunged into its biggest conflict was one of the cruelest tricks that fate played on the human race in the 20th century. The book is also the story of how the centre of nuclear physics shifted from Britain to the United States, and the coming into being of post-war geopolitics in which nuclear capability would loom so large. But I began with a practical question. Given the wealth of publishing on Churchill and the Second World War, was this new book necessary? There is no book that looks at Churchill's relationship with nuclear weapons from the word go to his death, which is what my book does. So there was definitely a gap in the market. The question is, is that an interesting story? And I think I demonstrate in the book that it is a very interesting story and that brings out aspects of Churchill's personality, behaviour, etc., that have not been explored widely elsewhere. And I think one of the things which makes it particularly interesting is that Churchill's interest in science goes way back. It wasn't something which just came about... Uh, at the time of the Second World War. Maybe take us back to his friendship with H.G. Wells, because H.G. Wells, I noticed throughout the book, is kind of like a touchstone, it's a sort of reference point. So tell me what's preoccupying Wells and Churchill back in the early decades of the 20th century. If you ask me, the most surprising thing I found out about Churchill, it was that when he was a subaltern in India, he was doing a kind of DIY university course that even featured science. He was reading Darwin. He was reading popular books on physics. So even then, when he was a young man, he knew that he had to know some science. And he was drawn quickly into the writings of H.G. Wells. He read all of H.G. Wells' books twice. So we can be pretty sure that he read the uh, world set free in 1914 where H.G. Wells introduces the notion of, uh, of atomic bombs. Churchill's thinking about war was very critically influenced by H.G. Wells. This, uh, um, how can I put it, uh, wish to downplay the use of 
fighting soldiers and greatly increase the importance of backroom scientists and strategists. He was very, very keen on that. And I make a big deal of this in the book because I don't think other people have drawn it out uh, with, uh, with sufficient vividness. And Churchill could see early on that warfare in the 20th century was going to be a very different proposition from it had been in the 19th and indeed uh, even since the, the, the First World War. He did. Churchill was somebody who was always on the lookout for new technologies, new science that could benefit the military. Classic example of that was uh, the Wright brothers and the aeroplane. Straight away, he's urging the government to go and uh, talk to the Wright brothers, see how we can use this technology. He saw very quickly that this ability to hop over sea could undermine the British Navy and the we, we Britain, had to be uh, in the forefront of developing that particular type of aerial technology. And yes, all the way through his career, he was encouraged by his uh, friend, Lord Charwell, uh, Frederick Lindemann. He was constantly pushing for new technology to be uh, used uh, by the military, encouraging them, sometimes against their uh, uh, wishes, to look forward and embrace the, the new ideas coming out of the labs. You mentioned Frederick Lindemann there, and I, had, I have to confess I hadn't come across him before, and he's a fascinating character. And he, he goes all the way through Churchill's career, and therefore all the way through your story. Can you say a little bit about what sort of man he was? He was an oddball, brilliant as a young researcher. There's no doubt about that. Very quick on the uptake, very versatile, wide knowledge of physics, a good inventor, brilliant at summarising arguments in a pithy manner and in a way that can be understood by non-specialists. Those things, with the cachet of knowing everyone in physics, friend of Einstein, made him a very useful ally of Churchill. They met in the early 1920s and Churchill quickly moved away from the orbit of H.G. Wells and was you could argue, if you uh, if, if you were minded, almost a captive to uh, Lindemann's imagination and urgings about uh, the use the use of science. Lindemann was not well liked. There's no doubt about that. He was a snob. He, he was somebody who really knew how to bear grudges. He was uh, really only well liked by his close friends, but he had those qualities that I've mentioned. And he was extremely loyal, again, something that Churchill regarded as absolutely vital in his, uh, in, in his friends and acquaintances. And he, on balance, did Churchill a lot of good. I argue in the book very strongly that science is a communitarian pursuit. And to use the motto of the Royal Society here in, in Britain, you should take nobody's word for it. There is no such thing as a unique authority in science in any branch of science at any time. You should never trust the word of one individual person. And that, to me, was the serious error that Churchill committed. It was wonderful that he knew that he needed scientific counsel, but it was, it was naive and wrong of him to invest so much trust in one scientist. We mentioned Wells right back at the beginning of this story. And, of course, the idea of the atomic bomb was held to be fanciful by scientists mm. for quite a long time. And it's very interesting in your book how you track the various stages by which it becomes more and more of a, a realistic 
possibility. And there was one moment which occurred not very far from where we are here today mm. when an emigre scientist had an epiphany at a, at a, a road junction. Yep. Maybe you can describe that and, and um, tell me a bit about the, the man who had it. Mm. Well, first, it's, the important thing is that, as you say, nuclear scientists by and large were sceptical that this source of energy deep in the heart of the atom would be harnessed for weapons and for for, for generating power that we could we can use lord rutherford the king of nuclear scientists was a nuclear skeptic himself in in that that regard leo zillard who was a refugee from europe at a time when it was uh, politically very unstable uh, with anti-semitism rife in in central europe he just around the corner from here as you rightly say had this epiphany that in a chain reaction where you uh, where you uh, have a uranium nucleus uh, it's uh, bombarded by a neutron releases more neutrons which in turn go on to release energy from more uranium nuclei that you could in that way release nuclear energy and that if you did it quickly enough and it's small enough space you could build a nuclear weapon and what Szilard realized fueled by Wells's imagination was the potency of that weapon at a time when you had this appalling dictator starting to take hold in uh, in Germany not the only dictator but the 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 the, 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 the most potentially powerful one Adolf Hitler so yes, Szilard was a very, very uh, important figure in this story. He was the person clamouring to make sure that, that at all costs, Hitler would not be the first person to get his hands on nuclear weapons. To other emigre scientists who were in the UK, Frisch and Piles, take the story on further in a paper they wrote. Both their experience and Szilard's bring home the fact that your story really is about what happens when science and politics mm. have to coexist and yeah. how how you can have an idea but it depends who you are and where you are and whose ear you have what actually happens to that idea yes it is often said that the availability so to speak of nuclear energy at pretty much the time that the world was plunged into its biggest conflict was one of the cruelest tricks that fate played on the human race in the 20th century. I don't dissent from that. I think what is fascinating is how many contingencies were part of the realization of of that uh, scenario. Just look, March 1940, Britain and its empire back to the wall. Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain desperately struggling and Two emigre scientists, both refugees, Otto Fritsch and Rudolf Pahl, sitting, both enemy aliens, according to the government classification, sitting in their rather nice office, actually, uh, in the University of Birmingham. And then it hits them that it is possible to build a nuclear weapon by firing two special types of uranium together at high energy and then creating a a critical mass that could then explode. That was absolutely critical to the development of of the bomb. And I have to say, they're human beings, everyone makes mistakes, but that was handled very well. It was taken by their boss, Mark Oliphant, to the government, who then took it through committee, 
had a reasonable sense of urgency, wasn't perfect, but by and large it was given to the government. Scientists didn't go away in some, you know, some science fiction horror show and work on their own. They worked closely with the government. And, and as you say, it really throws a bright light on that interplay between uh, science and politics. Was Great Britain at that stage in a position to prosecute the idea of creating a nuclear bomb? Or was it in such a state of embattlement that it would never have been a possibility, irrespective of how much attention had been had been given to, to it? But if you look at the committee that was nurturing this project, investigating its viability, you have to say, you, you read the minutes of those meetings and to a large extent, one sits in admiration because, remember, we, we, we have the benefit of hindsight now, of course, and you look back and they, you thought, this is actually very high-quality discussion. The one thing that does cause a wry smile to come across uh, the face of people looking at those things now is that people, well-informed people, like Churchill's advisor, Lindemann, like James Chadwick, really believe that Britain could go it alone and build one of those weapons. Now, if you look at what was needed to build the weapon, as it turned out in the Manhattan Project, it was a vast, vast project that Britain couldn't possibly have developed, in either in terms of building the plant to do it under the Nazi bombers, or in terms of the sheer amount of money uh, required to, to do it. But nonetheless, wisdom did win out, so to speak, in that uh, Britain did decide not to build the bomb and in my view, didn't get anything like as good a deal as it could have done in working with the United States, who ran with the thing and built the, the first weapon, as we know. Yeah, why do you think that happened? Because it, it, did, it does seem as though Churchill took his eye off the ball. There was a, a moment where Roosevelt was more or less suggesting that, you know, let's, let's do this jointly. And he, he, it was as though he, he really didn't accord it sufficient attention. This is always going to be controversial. In, as you say, in October 1941, early October 1941, Roosevelt wrote to Churchill suggesting an equal harness collaboration. Churchill was at that time pretty cherry about working with the United States because Britain had many, in many ways, was leading the United States in its uh, military technology. But what is strange to me is that normally he was so attentive almost obsequious to uh, Roosevelt, that he didn't reply to that. It is true that the advice he was getting from uh, Lindemann and others was, well, we Britons, could, we, you know, we've got a, a real lead here, we've got the technology, but st it still is not satisfactory to me, the, the idea that that, uh, that that can be completely excused. I'm still very, very surprised and disappointed, actually, that Churchill did not at least put some energy into it and i have to say later on even if even if you ignore that which is a big uh, which is a big ask but even if you ignore that churchill didn't really get the bit between his teeth on nuclear weapons until april 1943 that's a long time afterwards right 18 months roughly before he he was doing what one imagines churchill would do as a great war leader looking at why the Americans were sidelining Britain. He wanted a report from his scientific advisors. He wanted papers written. He wanted committees uh, convened. He ran with that, but much too late. By then, Britain had missed the bus, as the uh, historian, great historian of the nuclear project, Margaret Gowing, said. How seriously was the possibility that Germany would develop a nuclear weapon first taken during the war? 
it was taken very seriously at the beginning. And that's because Germany had a mighty industrial machine. It also had a cadre of absolutely first-rate nuclear scientists. I think it fair to say that if Hitler had been better advised, in his terms, let me say, but if he had been more uh, taken science more seriously, if he invested in the bomb rather than these ridiculous uh, V1 and V2 weapons that he, uh, that, that he invested so heavily in, then I don't think it's beyond the bounds of possibility that he could have had the, the, the nuclear weapons and maybe could have gone down in some Gotterdammer and, uh, you know, well, to hell with them, or blow up Moscow or blow up London or, or, or what have you. So now we know what happened, but I think it, the scientists at that time in particular were very, very well justified in being fearful of the, of the Germans' capacity to build nuclear weapons. Now, was it Pearl Harbor that really brought about a step change in the prospects of a nuclear weapon actually becoming a reality. Definitely. Once the Americans were in the war, the, the rate of growth of the Manhattan Project, as it was soon called, accelerated. And it became a big project that Roosevelt, to his credit, he backed to the hilt. I have to say one is in awe, frankly, of the resources that he put into it. And in to- virtually total secrecy, he didn't even tell his vice president about the project in any meaningful way. So the Americans going in to the Sec- Second World War was absolutely critical to that. And then it became a case, or it eventually became a case, that even if the Nazis weren't capable, because it, it probably at some stage mm. they, they were so weakened it became unlikely, but it didn't really matter. The Americans were, were, were definitely going to develop this weapon. Yes. In today's language, there was mission creep in the Manhattan Project. It started off quite clear. I've spoken to people who worked on scientists who worked on it. They were in absolutely fear and terror of, the, of, of Hitler getting the bomb first. Gradually the raison d'etre from the project changed and it became to give the American government the nuclear weapon to do whatever they wanted to do with it. And from the American government's point of view, and I have to say from Churchill's as well, it was a way of ending, or very likely ending the Second World War by inflicting huge casualties. But it needs to be remembered that the number of people who died in the first nuclear attack was comparable to the number of one firebombing of Tokyo. Now, that's often forgotten. I mean, all of this is appalling, absolutely appalling thing to contemplate. But in the calculus of warfare, Hiroshima did not look like an egregious war crime or anything like that. It looked like a continuation of bombing by other means, go from uh, from, uh, regular explosives to nuclear explosives. What was more controversial was the decision to, to go to Nagasaki, which was happened uh, relatively short time afterwards, and that uh, I think plenty of people behind the scenes thought was was too precipitate. And in the drive to accomplish the Manhattan Project, which was carried out, I think, in about a thousand days from from start oh, to finish, amazing. was much thought being given at the highest level to the post-war order and what the the creation of nuclear weapons was going to mean about geopolitics. Only towards the end of the of, of the project, a very important influence there was Niels Bohr, without a doubt. I mean, he came out of occupied uh, Denmark and quickly saw that very little thought was being given to the 
the state of geopolitics with these new new weapons and the fact that Britain and America were in an, a nuclear alliance, so to speak, but that the Soviet allies knew nothing about this. Or neither Roosevelt nor Churchill wanted Stalin to know anything about this weapon. And uh, in Bohr's view, which you may say was naive, but you could say was uh, enlightened too, that this was deeply damaging to trust after the war. I believe that it was a great missed opportunity to have taken so little cognizance of Niels Bohr's views. I'm not saying that Stalin would have immediately said, oh, this is wonderful, you know, we'll sit back and we'll all be friends. That's, that's ridiculous. But I think a more enlightened policy from Churchill and Roosevelt would have made the Cold War perhaps less freezing cold than it, than it was in the late 40s, early 50s. Niels Bohr has one meeting with Churchill during yes. the war, and it's a pretty disastrous meeting, isn't it? Yeah, it was a totally disastrous meeting. Uh, Churchill felt that he was being uh, manipulated into meeting this scientist. He didn't rate Bohr as an interesting or enlightened person. He deeply resented scientists muscling into a place at the top table, and it was uh, it was a disaster. He Churchill treated Lindemann, who was at the meeting, and Bohr like uh, like errant schoolboys. And he, he wanted nothing to do with uh, with Bohr's thinking, which he probably barely understood, because Bohr was a great mumbler. Even worse, Franklin Roosevelt was really at his worst there, because he feigned concern and interest in uh, in Bohr's views, but in fact he, he, he wanted nothing to do with them. In addition to being a story about the relationship between politics and science, it's also very much a story about the relationship between Great Britain and the United States mm. and gradually Churchill coming to realisation that the Britain of the post-war era is going to be very different from the Britain of the, the pre-war era. Yes, it is moving actually look at the tra- tra- Churchill's trajectory uh, in the Second World War when he realises towards the end that you know he's sitting at the table with the powers who are going to be superpowers after the war, namely the Soviet Union and uh, the the United States. And if Churchill believed in one thing, it was in, you know, the uh, preeminence of the British Empire, which he thought was a good thing, capital A, capital G, capital T. And he saw that this huge empire, which had been so dominant for most of his life, was going to play a secondary role. And, uh, And that, combined with his dismay at seeing what Stalin had planned for Europe was deeply saddening for him. I mean, I'm not saying the war was fought for nothing, but it was a deeply depressing outcome for him. And he had some pretty shocking ideas about what might be done with the, the bomb in the post-war, the immediate post-war period, didn't he? In that brief window when the United States had it, but Russia didn't. Yes. Churchill believed it was vital that when America had the monopoly on the bomb that they should use that diplomatic card. And just briefly considered behind the scenes, I think with three incidents altogether, where in his view it was perfectly reasonable to use the bomb, actually make a preemptive strike on the Soviet Union. But he did back away from that where the Soviets got their weapon and he saw that uh, it was, you know, that such, such thinking was, uh, was, was not sensible. Nuclear arms remained a serious preoccupation for him throughout his career and throughout the rest of his life. Yes, he he was constantly pushing Prime Minister Attlee. You know, why are we so long in getting the bomb? You know, he realised it had to be a secret project, but you know what? You know, why is Britain so slow in acquiring these weapons? When Churchill triumphantly goes back into Downing Street, he's absolutely shocked 
to see the amount of money that Attlee and his government had been spending on developing atomic weapons without disclosing any of this to Parliament. There was never a debate in that Attlee government on nuclear weapons. It was just the merest the merest mention in a planted question in, in Parliament. So Attlee had been secretive, Churchill had been secretive, and then we go back to Churchill being secretive again because he doesn't tell a Parliament that he's actually given the wink to develop the hydrogen bomb. The most momentous day, perhaps, of uh, that second uh, premiership was when he was sitting in his bedroom in Downing Street and read a report in The Guardian uh, in the 1953, if I recall correctly. And he, he read of the sheer destructiveness of the hydrogen bomb. I mean, it made a, the atomic bomb look like a pea shooter. And he realised what was at stake. And this gave him a great cause that he could get behind towards the end of his prep. He was very old then, approaching uh, 80 years old. He was dealing with stuff that he regarded largely as footling, you know, domestic stuff. He was, uh, you know, this was not particular interest to him. He wanted a project that would bring him to the world stage. And he regarded it as his duty to, to secure an easement in the Cold War so that we avoided this appalling prospect of a thermonuclear war. On a lighter note, Graham, I imagine delving into the lives of some of these scientists must have been fascinating because mm. there's some very strong characters in mm. there and fascinating characters, idiosyncratic characters. Mm. You can't help but feel for those scientists because virtually to a man, and they were all men, I'm sad to say that would be nice if there were some female characters uh, in there, but every one of them, really what they wanted to do was curiosity-driven research be adequately funded and just get on with it, finding out about the way God made the world, to use to coin a phrase. Then they were thrust into this nexus of science and politics and warfare completely against their war. Many of them completely, most of them, completely ill-equipped to, to deal with it. So you have these characters who are being really stretched. I mean, James Chadwick, Rutherford's deputy, who finds himself as Britain's leading representative on the Manhattan Project, a Churchill devotee, incredibly smart guy, brilliant experimenter, wanted one of the great experiments of the century when he discovered the neutron, which is the little particle that it makes available nuclear energy. Totally overwhelmed with the workload that uh, he had on the uh, on, on the project. Later, there were these three scientists, one, John Cockcroft, another one of Rutherford's boys, as Rutherford called them, uh, William Penny, the British Oppenheimer, and Christopher Hinton, who was perhaps the greatest engineer Britain produced in the 20th century. Those three were known as the Atomic Knights, and they delivered British nuclear weapons and nuclear power for Winston Churchill at really a knockdown price and with remarkable speed that is one of the great stories of science in the 20th century at least for, for for britain because remember they had virtually no help from the united states which had gone its own way and had, uh, had gone withdrawn into itself and developed its own uh, weapons as far as it possibly could from anywhere else churchill's known for the robustness of his of his attitudes and his prose but you say that when he wrote about this issue about nuclear weapons there's an uncharacteristic pessimism that creeps in and that certainly seems to be the case he was aware that maybe not all the way through but he was latterly aware of just how much was at stake yes i think that's right churchill was pessimistic when he left office he knew that his job as prime minister was to be the uh, was to be bold 
fearless, optimistic, just as he was in May 1940. But deep down, he was pessimistic that scientists had given politicians a weapon that was just too big to handle well. It may be that one day we see that as a prescient remark. It is true that since the Second World War, no nuclear bomb has been used. There will be near accidents, we know that. We also know that it's uh, by no means impossible that uh, nuclear weapons could get into the hands of terrorists and other agencies. So it is by no means clear that the last page has been written on the nuclear story, and it may be that in the long run Churchill will be proved right. Can you say a little about how your feelings for Churchill evolved over the course of researching and writing this book? My feelings towards Churchill did change. I came to the book admiring him as a statesman, also of his writing style, which I know is not modernist and and deep, but nonetheless has a wit and appeal that is pretty well undeniable. What impressed me perhaps more than anything else was his appetite for life, which is colossal, and also, you know, his appetite for ideas, literature, science. He really was interested and he wanted to do something with that knowledge. And I must say, you know, if you look at politicians today, right, and how hard they're worked, how narrow many of their views are, they could learn an awful lot from Winston Churchill. I was talking to Graham Farmelow. His book, Churchill's Bomb, is out now in hardback. And Graham's previous book, The Strangest Man, is available in paperback. For more information about both, go to faber.co.uk. You can make sure you never miss this programme by subscribing to it on iTunes. It's free, quick and easy. Go to iTunes and type Faber in the search box on the podcast page and a subscription's just a couple of clicks away. And the complete Faber podcast archive is also available on SoundCloud. That's all for this edition of the Faber podcast, but I'll be back again soon with another programme. Until then, thank you very much for listening and goodbye.